What's really strange about this episode for me is that most of my thoughts on it are how ridiculous and stupid it is, but I really like it. This is one of my favorites. This is on the VHS collection for me. But the more you sit and think about it, the less sense it makes, not from the construction of the narrative, which is where it works, or the overall skeleton of it, which is where it works, but rather from just a simple logical perspective. So, I don't know, it's hard to talk about. But anyway, so first of all, I do want to say something really quick here. Uh, this was the second episode directed by Adam Nimoy. Uh, now, you may remember him from directing Rascals, which I feel like I've already said all that I need to say about. Rick Berman actually said, eh, you know what, you know, that's not a fair judge of your abilities. I'll give you another shot. And he assigned him to this episode. Now, I've been around a while. And I've, I've encountered a lot of corporate speak in my days. And near as I can tell, what actually happened here was Berman was trying to hurt Nimoy's career, either to make sure that he didn't uh, ask for more money or to try and keep him on staff. Like, I know that sounds like a strange thing, but it's actually a semi-common thing to try and hurt the career of someone so they keep working for you rather than going on to bigger things. You know, just stuff like that. Because this... This is actually a ludicrously complex episode from a directorial perspective, from a construction perspective. It's actually astonishing they made this as good as they did, given how late in Season 6 it was, and the fact that they were already running dry on money and ideas and all that other stuff. Thing is, Braga took this idea and ran with it, and Nimoy took the idea and ran with it. And we had talented people working on a, on a craft... And Nimoy apparently also understood something that I am amazed a lot of people don't get. And I can't describe it in a single sentence. I'm going to try here. The more you get before you hit the editing room, the better. There you go. I guess I did just do that in a sentence. But it still doesn't describe it. So, for example, let's say you want to do a special effect with someone um, you know, being duplicated. So... Obviously, you can do post work, you know, you can do the mirror image, or you can do green screen, or there's several methods to do that. But the more work you can do while recording during the raw footage period, and the less you have to lean on special effects and editing, the better the result's going to be. Now, this is also part of another thing. Um, this is much harder to describe, but basically, there are methods and styles of producing things that work better with effects. Now, I'm more familiar with this on the audio side of things. I have several templates I use for certain audio editing. Now, if I was to use that template uh, to, to, like, your voice or to someone else's voice who isn't modulating their voice in a specific way, just when they're speaking, I mean, you know, if they're not using their voice in a certain way, the effect is going to be completely... it's going to be worse. It's not going to work the way it's supposed to because... The more work you do before you get to editing, the better the result is. You kind of see the idea here? So Nimoy understood this principle, this core principle of visual and audio design. And so he sat down and mapped out everything he wanted to do with the raw footage, everything he wanted to do with the editing, and everything he wanted to do with the effects department. And he coordinated between all of these things, and we get the episode proper. You'll notice there are very, very, very few special effects flaws in this episode. Some logical flaws. But the way the overall show is presented and directed is phenomenal. So definite credit there. So, starting the episode proper, Spot isn't declawed. Why is Spot not declawed? 
I'm actually kind of curious about that. There's no reason for Spot to have claws. Anyways, moving on. It's okay, Spot changes genders at one point, so whatever. Then there's Troy. So, they, they talk about the symposiums. I love the idea. Excuse me. <clears throat> Would you like to come and engage in empirical research on interspecies mating rituals? Oh, wow. I I thought I was pathetic. I don't think I've ever used a pickup line like that. <laughs> but what I like about the intro is it's very mundane. What it does is it establishes the norm, and it just feels like another slice of life. It's just them talking about the symposiums that they've gone to and how they respectively felt about them. And then things go wrong. The freeze happens. It's a very minor thing. But it does happen, and we see it, so we know that it happens to some extent or another. Control of visual medium, etc. Okay, I'm with that. They're also in a runabout, by the way, which is just astonishing that they're actually using a freaking runabout on this show. Holy crap, I think this is one of the only times they do that. So, I also like how they all take Troy seriously. Now, of course they should. This is season six. But... You know, they all acknowledge that what she's saying is probably true, and they, they do their due diligence in trying to figure out what the heck went wrong. Then it happens to her for a longer period of time, th three minutes instead of just a few seconds. And they're like, okay, aging is weird. This is when we find out uh, some strangeness. I'm trying really hard not to nitpick this episode because there's so many logical flaws here. How does a temporal area envelop them and the ship, but not Troy? How does a temporal area only envelop Troy, even when they're interacting with the space she's in? How does a temporal area stay static within a spot while they are stationary? How is it that they were not traveling at warp to begin with? Remember, runabouts, I mean, shuttles can go to warp, but runabouts can go to even more rope, like uh, warp six, I want to say? Something like that. That's not exactly short. Yet they enter warp when they're suddenly in a hurry to go back. This also brings up the usual question I have, which is, why doesn't the Enterprise just go frickin' pick them up? It can go warp nine. <sighs> I know what you're thinking. Well, that drains the energy. Okay. So go warp nine to get there, because it'll take seconds, maybe minutes, and then you can relax the engines for a bit while you're getting them on board. This is not complicated. Anyways. <clears throat> I mean, I could keep dissecting things here, but, uh, like, for example, the scanners can't detect the ships, which is explainable by the fact that the energy emissions aren't really traveling technically, so there's nothing to detect. But they can still see them, because apparently light is still moving, despite time being frozen, but only temporally and only for certain areas, which not the ones they're in, of course, before they establish a private zone of temporal protection. <laughs> I mean, I can keep going. How do they breathe when they, when they beam aboard the other ships? How do they beam aboard the other ships? How do they physically interact with the environment? I, I could keep going. You get the idea. There's just flaw upon flaw upon flaw because the core premise is nonsense. This is actually probably the biggest example of Cloud Effect I've ever seen. I know I've said that a couple times, but this one trumps a lot of them. I do very much enjoy this episode, and it is nonsensically ridiculous. If I had actually thought about it, I might have named it Timescape Effect rather than Cloud Effect, because this is insane. Wow. At 16 minutes, the Dederdex shows up. This is when the strength of the episode starts to really show itself. Oh, there's been some good camera work, and there's been some good acting, but for the most part, it's just 
Time is freezing in pockets. Oh, and there's the Enterprise and the Dideridex. The Dideridex is firing on the Enterprise, so that's a problem. But, but the Enterprise has a beam going back. So already we've got the first piece of a very large puzzle, and it's like, wait a minute. This is, in my opinion, the biggest strength of the episode. It really starts at 19, the 19-minute mark. We spend the better part of the next 25 minutes working on this strength. And that strength is, the episode's already happened. All of the events that would be part of a typical episode happened off-camera, before these events. We're coming in after the fact, and we're trying to piece together what's going on with what is literally a snapshot. We can see what's on the panels, but we can't interact with them even though the sound effects guy screwed up and put the sounds in. <laughs> that was apparently just a very simple screw-up, because they're so used to putting in the sound beeps whenever someone touches the panel. Anyways, <clears throat> but yeah, so we can see screenshots of there, and we can see what's happening on the bridge. So there's people on the bridge, but they're armed, but they're, the guy's, like, reaching out to Riker, and there's no security there. But they have been dispatched to two other places, and sort of like, okay... And then we see that we're evacuating the Dideridex on the transporter beams, but also that Crusher's been shot. And you can see how these, basically we just keep getting these little factoids that don't actually line up and make sense. And trying to deduce what is going on is, for once, the main thrust of the mystery. Now, I do have to admit, the guy shooting Crusher is kind of a narrative cheat. First of all, it helps to establish the scope and one of the goals that will come up later. Um, because she's dead. Like, as of that moment, she is dead. And as Data points out later, when they see the Warp Core breach, the Warp Core breach has already happened, past tense. So, the end. <laughs> That's it. You're, you're done. You're gone. Have fun. The only thing that is changed now is the fact that it's happening more slowly than usual. Also, as a quick aside, and this is going to sound very strange, but I really like the fact that time is not frozen. It is just slowed down to the point where it is functionally frozen. I've actually done a lot of discussions of time travel and time in general in fiction. That's because time has actually been a very fascinating topic for me in real life. And I've actually theorized, in my extremely amateurish way, that in real-life terms, freezing time isn't really feasible. But slowing it down a tremendous amount is actually much, much easier to do from a theoretical perspective. And I just thought it was cool the way they present that here, because it does make more sense. It is distended, not disconnected. A true temporal disconnect is really going to be a different kind of a thing. This is more like time is being silly puttied to a very, very, very severe extreme extent, which makes perfect sense. And, of course, Data being the one to pick up on that, I'm with it. Now, they, they, so we've also already established some of the pieces of the puzzle. Now we have to establish some of the obstacles, so they can't just beam around all willy-nilly. They have to beam very precisely because they have limited power. Despite the fact that they have infinite time, they don't. In fact, they only have hours before the Enterprise is destroyed, and of course they have the problem of the fact that they have only enough energy to maintain their temporal dis disconnect. Um, uh, that's the wrong word. Uh, temporal bubbles. You know, if, if they run out of energy, then they're screwed. Okay. Then they lose Picard. Now, I love the, the smiley face in the, in the Warp Corp range cloud. I do love that. But I do also have to point out that that is a sign of him, you know, as they say, just kind of losing it, effectively, which means Picard is no longer part of the main solution. So now they've lost a man. So now they're down to three. So they can't transport around all willingly. They have limited power and they have less people. Okay. Then 
time moves forward and we see what happens. The Enterprise is destroyed. Thousands of people are dead. The Romulans are trying to figure out what the hell is going on. It gives us another little peek into the, the solution. Then time rewinds. And we kind of undo all of that. And then time stops, you know, slows down again. And it's like, okay. So now we have another tool in our arsenal. The rep, uh, not the replicator, the, uh, the tri tricorder. Tricorder, which allows us to interact with it in order to trigger these things deliberately. It also, however, then leads to one of the aliens attacking Geordi. So he has to have his wrist thing removed, and that now means that they are down another person. So they've gained a tool and lost a tool. You see what I mean about the construction of the episode being its strength? A lot of the nature of this episode is a, is a slow, continuous buildup, all the way up until... Um, like the 42-minute mark, something like that, and just basically right before the denouement, is all build up until they finally actually solve everything and put all the pieces into place. It's like playing a game of Tetris, right? Except the, the piece is just stuck up there, and you could see the next 15 pieces you're going to get, and you have to figure out how it's all going to go, but you don't really have direct control over when and how it lands, and all of a sudden three of your pieces just go away, and now you have to make do without like, it's all about, the, there's, there's something wonderfully tactical about this episode, which I don't know how to describe elsewise. Okay, so we need to be in the right position. We're only going to have, like, 20 seconds to in, implement things once time is restructured. We need to be over here. Uh, this person needs to be in this position. We're going to have to, obviously, we're going to have to interact with the the the, Der, the, the Singularity Core. Rewind it so that that can happen. Okay, we need someone in... Uh, in sick bay to save Crusher, that's important. We need someone on the bridge, we need someone in engineering. Just, I love the way they just kind of stagger this all and try to solve this puzzle, because that's effectively what the episode is. It's like a puzzle game. Like, it's like playing Portal, <laughs> for God's sakes. And you're sitting there, and you've got three boxes and a turret, and the portal gun, and only these spaces are selectable, and you have to get over there. That's what this episode feels like to me, and it's part of why it's so enjoyable. So we've gotten all these pieces, and we have an idea of the dilemma, and we have the goals we want to accomplish. Jordy's gone, um, we find out about the aliens, and we want to save the aliens too, so that's a new goal. So we've got to save Crusher, save the Enterprise in general, stop the Warp Core breach, get everyone off the Dederdex, get Jordy to safety, then we have to save the aliens, and all of this has to happen basically within the space of 20 seconds. Okay. Whew. Then, of course, the first thing goes wrong. Data is attacked by... Lita, because the telepaths just can't stop pushing their agendas. And it's like, okay, now what do we do? What do we do? So they try to revert things. Crusher is saved. The, they, they fling the runabout into the middle of the beam. The, the rest of the Romulan ship just warps out of existence along with the aliens. Presumably they're young, get to save. Geordi is beamed over. I hope they finish the evacuation. Like, a Dederodex is a big ship. It's actually bigger than the Galaxy class. Granted, it doesn't have as much overall mass because of the, the nature of how it's constructed, and it's more of a warbird, so smaller crew, but still. Anyways, this then gives, and, and they manage, and say, oh, then they do it. And I don't have much else to say about this, except that I, I have so much praise for Braga for putting the episode together, and for Nimoy for putting the episode together. Obviously, everyone else gets praised, too, and there's a lot of people involved in this episode. It's just, this is what it feels like, in my opinion, when TNG hits those high marks. 
it's not going to be the smartest thing around. It's not going to be the most sensical thing around. And as I, and I could keep dissecting how little sense this episode makes. Or I could point out how extremely well constructed it is from a piece of entertainment. Cloud effect, right? I really like this one. And it was a good thing to, to kind of help because season six has been a very rough season. Sometimes it's been great and sometimes it's been awful. Now, starting next week, we're going to cover Descent, Part 1. Um, I'm not sure what I'm going to think about that one. I suppose we'll have to see when we go back through it. But after that is Season 7, and oh boy! Don't worry, we'll talk about that when we get to whatever's after Descent, Part 2. Either way, I hope you've enjoyed my thoughts, guys. And I'm looking forward to hearing yours about how incredibly wrong and stupid I am. I'll see you next time.